Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, Yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, as you can see, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and now we have the, uh, the pleasure of uh, exploring this uh, conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. She's a very interesting person, and I love Christ more for having this conversation with her. Uh, he's not just talking about personal issues with her, but he's talking theology with her, and I like that especially during this period of time when uh, women were not educated in the Torah and where some rabbis even believed that it was a sin to spend too much time talking to your wife because it distracted you from studying the Torah. It would have been a shame and a disgrace to educate your daughter in the Torah. And yet here's Jesus just breaking all of that and he sits down and he has this conversation about theology with this woman and so it just and and there's a lot about her you see that we go for about 43 verses there um, 
I'm going to spend a few weeks in this passage because I just think she's interesting and I'd like to spend time really doing justice to this section. And so let's begin here this morning with verse 4. We're going to look at this concept of living water this morning. And uh, so let's begin by looking here at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph's. Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, if you're a first through sixth grader here with us this morning, you're here participating in the sermon. Uh, The way to do this is to have a Bible out on your lap, and you can kind of follow along verse by verse. And uh, then you can also use the back of the sermon discussion questions that we use in our shepherd groups here. You can use that for taking a couple of notes. If there's something that kind of jumps out at you that you think God might be saying to you from this passage this morning, then you can write that down, talk to your parents about it later, and that, and that sort of thing. So we're looking at this little paragraph here, verses 4 to 8, and it begins by telling us that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria was a place that was uh, a little bit scandalous during during Jesus' day and still is. What happened in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And the way that the Assyrians used to uh, uh, conquer foreign lands is they would take away all of the upper crust elites and sprinkle them throughout their empire rather than keeping them together as the Babylonians did with the southern kingdom in 486 BC. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians and they just wanted to wipe out the countries and assimilate them into their own nationality. And so what happened is the Assyrians came in, they pulled out most of the Jews uh, and all of the upper crust folks, the very religious, the very wealthy, uh, the political, and all those people were gone and they were sprinkled out uh, throughout the uh, throughout the Assyrian Empire at that time, and what they did is they left behind all of the poor people. And what happened is that many of those poor uh, Jews, uh, Israelites, were left behind, and they didn't have any leadership and so on. And they started intermarrying with some of the Canaanite people around them. And so later on, when the southern kingdom came back from exile and got things going again in Jerusalem, several hundred years had gone by. And in this northern kingdom, you have all of these people that the southern people believe were just kind of half-breeds. They had violated the Torah. They had started to make up their own version of the Old Testament. And it began to grow apart as a separate religion. They still believed in the patriarchs and so on, but they rewrote some of the Old Testament. And uh, they also set up their own temple at a totally different location. So that's what's going on here. In Jesus' day, the Jews believed that these uh, Samaritans were very disobedient, very unclean half-breeds that you should avoid at all cost. And here's Jesus walking right through the middle of all of that. And so you got to love him for doing that. And he comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jacob's well is still there. In fact, I've drunk water from that well. You can go there. Actually, you probably can't get in there now because it's under Palestinian control uh, and a dangerous area. But if, if that were not the case, you could still go to this place. You could still see this well. It's got a spring uh, underneath it. And if you can dig down deep enough, then you can, uh, 
you can taste water from this same place where, where Jesus was uh, on this day. And it tells us this very interesting thing in verse 6. And this isn't one of the main points of the passage, but it, it's worth at least just a minute or two here of comment. In verse 6, notice it says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was tired? He'd been walking for a long time, and it's in the heat of the day, and he plops down beside this well because he's tired. Now, how is that possible for Jesus to be tired if we believe that Jesus is actually the, the, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's all-powerful? How do you explain the fact that God got tired? And the way that we do this is by recognizing that Jesus is the only being uh, in the universe. He's the only uh, being who has two natures. He has a divine nature, which has always existed. He has always existed as the Son and always had this divine nature. But when the Holy Spirit put him inside the womb of Mary, now all of a sudden you have a human nature that was woven together with a divine nature, and now you have two natures in one person. And what happened is that all throughout his ministry, we see Jesus getting hungry. We see him even not knowing something that God the Father knows in terms of his, the date of his return. Nobody knows the time or the hour except the Father and Harold Camping. So isn't that in the, that's in there somewhere, I think. So, so you have this uh, two natures in one person. Jesus Christ is two natures in one person. And in his human nature, he got tired, he got hungry, and that's where, what we see happening here. And it's a mystery. You can read systematic theology on, on this, and it's very interesting to see how people have tried to figure out how these two things fit together. And there have been quite a few heresies. Uh, throughout the first hundreds of years of the early church in order to try and figure out, well, now, how exactly does that work, that you have two natures in one person? Uh, J.I. Packer says this about it. He says, incarnation means that the Son of God lived his divine human life in and through his human mind and body at every point, maximizing his identification and empathy with those he had come to save and drawing on divine resources to transcend human limits of knowledge and energy only when particular requirements of the Father's will so dictated. So that would be an orthodox way of explaining this relationship between the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ. The most important thing here is the implications for atonement. Because what we believe in atonement is that Jesus Christ died in our place. And the only way that works is if he's human. If he's pretending to be human, or maybe I'll fake tiredness here so that they'll I can relate to these people or something, then it's not going to count when he dies in our place. He has to have a fully human nature, fully divine, but he has to have a fully human nature also in order for the atonement to work and to count for us. He can't fake it. It has to be real or his death on our behalf wouldn't count. So that's just a, a little phrase there, but raises an important issue of Christology that Jesus did get tired. Okay, so then we're told uh, later in verse 6, wearied as he was from his journey. So look again in verse 6. We said he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour 
a woman from Samaria came to draw water. They started counting the hours around six o'clock in the morning. So what we're talking about here is early afternoon, just a little bit after lunchtime. This is the hottest time of the day. And what we're told by archaeologists and people who have studied these kinds of things is that the women of the city always went in groups in the morning and in the evening. You didn't go in the middle of the day and you certainly didn't go alone. And so this is an interesting detail that here you have this lady by herself, which is unusual, at an unusual hour. So a couple of little clues that are starting to come out here about what this lady's life is like. And so then Jesus says, uh, give me a drink, he says. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay, so they split up for a while. And it was common at that time for, the, for rabbis who had disciples following them around uh, to, to kind of give instructions. Okay, you guys go get food, and I'm going to stay here. And so that's what happened. These guys went into to the city to figure out how are we going to deal with lunch for this big you know, a group of disciples and whatever. And so they're going around finding lunch. And so Jesus is on his own. And he says to this lady, give me a drink. Now, this is, this is interesting. And it surprises her. Because Jews and Samaritans don't share utensils. And you know, that, you know this about Judaism even, even today, that there are different utensils for the meats and different utensils for the uh, milk products and so, and so on. There are all kinds of regulations uh, within Judaism about what you can and can't eat with. And the deal was at this time that you would never share a cup or a fork. I don't know if they had forks, but you would never share, you know, a tableware. You would never share tableware with a Samaritan because a Samaritan is unclean. Remember, way, way back, uh, 722 years earlier, you had uh, this intermarriage, which was a violation of the Torah requirements. And so this, you had this intermarriage, and then you had sort of a rewriting of the scriptures, and th then they were unclean. They were called unclean. You don't share eating utensils, stuff that you put in your body with someone who is ceremonially unclean. So that's, that's what's happening here and why it's so amazing that Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's surprised. And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. I wouldn't be asking you for a drink. And this idea of living water is what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Living water simply means, uh, Jesus is using it as, an, as a metaphor, so we'll explain the metaphor here, but but living water, that phrase living water, just means that the water is moving. It's not uh, stagnant. It, it isn't just a pool or a bucket of water or a cistern that they would kind of cut out of that limestone and the rainwater would go in there and kind of fill up and they could use that. Uh, living water is like a river or a stream or something like this. It's moving. It's alive. And so, so he's talking about uh, giving her 
living water. And this Jacob's well is a very deep well, and it's fed by a stream underneath. But the only way you can get at it is to lower something really low. So what would happen is that travelers from uh, uh, Jewish travelers, because they didn't want to touch any of the Samaritan stuff, would bring their own goat skin little pouches so that they could toss it down there and get their own water. And he's saying to her, I would like for you to get me a drink and I'd like to drink it out of your cup. So that's, that's what's going on here. And then he's saying this thing that, you know, I could give you living water. And she's like, how are you going to get that? Where, you, where exactly are you going to get living water? Because I've got the cup and you don't. So that's what's happening here. And Jesus is again using symbols And he's using misunderstanding in order to teach something very interesting. We've seen this many times through the book of John. John loves this stuff. John loves it when Jesus is thinking one thing and everybody else is thinking something different. And we've seen that happen all through from the very beginning. We've seen John uh, reminding us about different symbols that Jesus gave new meaning to. Uh, the light of the world or the concept of the bridegroom or the water and the wine. Remember the ceremonial water and the wine and the meaning of wine that Jesus attaches to it later with his blood. There's the clearing of the temple where he's talking about this idea of the temple no longer being a location but a person. Uh, in the previous passage, he's having a very oddly similar conversation with Nicodemus, totally different type of person, but a similar sort of thing about being born again and Nicodemus is like, what am I, how do you get born again? Am I supposed to go back inside my mom's tummy or something like this? And it's the same type of thing where Jesus says, I want to give you living water. And this lady says, how is that going to work? Because you don't have anything to get it with. And so, but he's, he continues to use these symbols and the misunderstanding of these symbols in order to teach something really cool. Uh, but she, at this point, doesn't know that he's speaking in metaphors. And he thinks, she thinks that he's really offering her a drink. So this is what she says. Uh, first he says, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. So she says, verse 11, John 4, verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, and this is a key statement. This is one of those underline it in your Bible type statements, because this is important. Jesus has been kind of, I, I think it's interesting that he's tired. It's a long thing, and, he, and, and he's ministering to this lady. I think that's really cool. And here's the key thing that he's been working up to. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So now she knows that he's using a metaphor because he's talking about eternal life. Okay. I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So now we know that Jesus is using another metaphor, which is common for us because we've been studying John and we see that he does this over and over. He's he's making wine for a party, but in his mind, there's a way more important party going on and a way more important bridegroom going on and a way better celebration. So all of that. And so here he is doing the same sort of thing. His living water 
is so alive that it creates eternal life. Jesus here is claiming to be the headwaters. He's claiming to be the source of eternal life. And she seems to get that. And so she says, I would like some of that water. Because now she knows that he's not talking about tossing a little goat skin down to the bottom of this old well. He's talking about something totally different. And so she says, I would like some of that water. And I think it's interesting that she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What does she mean by or have to come here to draw water? I actually think that the woman at the well is one of the most over-psychologized characters of the Bible. And so I'm trying to stay away from that because it's really easy to imagine what she was like and imagine why she did this and why she said that and so on. And so you kind of have to weed through some of that. It's fascinating and fun to do. But I think at least in the pulpit, it's important to say something that we just know is true. But let me just do the tiniest bit of this. Just the tiniest little tiny bit of this. I think that phrase... She says, she says, I would like to not be thirsty anymore, and I don't want to have to come here to draw water anymore. Why would she not want to come there to draw water anymore? And it, it might just be what it means on the surface, that it's annoying every day to have to come and get water. But I think there might be more, because we know she's there at an unusual time. We know that she's there by herself, and we find out in a few verses that she's kind of the most notorious sinner in town. And so some commentators will say that she's been ostracized by the community, I don't know that that's true. I would guess, you know, people with shame tend to do things by themselves because being around people reminds you of all of that. But, uh, you know, so many people just know who she is. It's a small town. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows, oh, did you hear who she's married to this week? I mean, she's the Elizabeth Taylor of her day. And uh, she hates this whole process of getting water. It's just, uh, she hates probably going outdoors. And I think she seems to be saying, I want eternal life. I want this water. And I do not want to have to come to this well anymore. So just a little tiniest bit of psychologizing there to imagine what she was like. Um, So she wants, we know that she wants what he's offering. And what does Jesus say? Fascinating what he says. Does he whip out his four spiritual laws? and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. No, what he does, what he does is uh, John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Ooh, he cuts to the core of probably why she comes to that well by herself at a weird time. This is very likely the biggest issue in her life is that she just goes from one guy to the next and now she's living with a guy that she's not married to. So we're on about five guys here and and Jesus says to her, go get your husband and and come. So she says, I want what you've got. And Jesus says, great, go get your husband and we'll talk about it. And she says, I don't have a husband, which is one of those times where you're kind of partially, partially true. Yeah, that's true. And Jesus said to her, yep, you're right. I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she asks for living water and he calls attention to this massive amount of shame in her life. And we know from the rest of scripture that eternal life only comes after we've dealt with a sin problem. That's what the gospel is all about. 
is that we get to have eternal life reconciled to God, our Father, who loves us. We get all of that. Living water, clean for eternity, provision for eternity. But we've got to deal with sin first. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the purpose of the incarnation, God become flesh, the purpose of that was to do exactly that, to clean people from sin. You remember what the angel said to Joseph when, right after he finds out that, uh, that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant. Yeesh. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Interesting similarity of issues there. Mary's public problem. And this lady's public problem. And Jesus is there to take away all the fear. So the flow of this conversation is interesting. He offers her water that wells up to eternal life. She wants it. And his response is to touch, which was almost most certainly uh, the most sensitive subject in her life. Very, very embarrassing sin. And the only solution to embarrassing sin, and this is really important because I know that there are those of you here today, and I've tried to emphasize this throughout the service, and not all of you have this problem, but some of you have this problem of hearing the words that come out of my mouth when I explain the gospel to you on Sunday morning, and it doesn't reach your heart because you just can't believe that God would love you and that, and that the blood of Jesus would actually clean you from sin. Maybe a partial cleaning like that thing in the kitchen that's technically clean, but it still looks dirty because you can't get that spot out. That's probably a little more like me. And God says, no. No, the blood of Jesus Christ, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is an incredible truth. And so you've got to hear these words that, uh, that are coming out of Jesus to this lady. I mean, you've got this conversation with the professional religious guy, Nicodemus, in the previous chapter, which is showing us a lot of things about God's relationship with the religious elite. And now he's going to, to the opposite of all of that. And there were probably a lot of people in between. John, as a brilliant writer, is putting these things together and say, I want to show you this distinction here, because if this lady's in, you're all in. She's a Samaritan. She's way outside the covenant community. She has sinned demonstrably over and over. She's a woman, which at the time was a problem. And God goes straight to her and says, you too can have this living water. We've got to deal with your sin first. Let's talk about that. And we find out through the rest of the story of the gospel and the epistles how that works and what that process looks like. But this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The only solution to embarrassing sin, the only solution to a, a lady or a man who grows up in a shame-based family and you've taken it with you for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, you've walked away, walked around feeling like I don't measure up, I never totally measure up, and you can see the shame on your own face when you look yourself in the mirror. 
There is a solution to that, and it is the living water that Jesus offers by his substitutionary death on the, clo- on the cross, which cleans all unrighteousness. So what is this living water? And I think there are two attributes of living water that I'd like to explore before we're done here today. And I realize we probably only have time for one, so we'll probably do the second one next week. What does Jesus mean by the phrase living water? Whenever Jesus uses a symbol, it's important for us to look at the Old Testament to see what he's talking about, rather than getting creative and think, well, I think he means this, and I think he means that. Jesus was not uh, leaving himself open to a hundred different interpretations. Uh, Jesus is about clarity. Jesus is about explaining truth. And there are immovable, beautiful, true truths throughout Scripture. So when he uses the phrase living water, it ought to make us think, I wonder exactly what he means there. I wonder... Uh, I wonder if I had the Bible in all of my easy access RAM here, if I could search for living water as a phrase and see what comes up, which is a brilliant thing you can do on the computer and things like that. You look up living water. And similar to the rest of the symbols in John, I think it's safe to say that he's using a concept that is common in the Old Testament. And so where does the phrase living water come from in the Old Testament? Listen to this. Cool stuff. First of all, it shows up several times in the law. When people had skin diseases or things like this, the priests had to bring them through a cleansing process that included living water. You couldn't just go get water from the bronze basin and do it, but you had to go find a stream or a well that had a spring or something like that and use that in order to clean this kind of a skin disease. And so it's part of a uh, ceremonial cleansing Living water is used as an important part of ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament. And so here Jesus is talking to this Samaritan divorcee, which is a double bummer at that time. And he's, and, and, and he's got a way to clean her. He's got a way to clean her. He's extending this offer to clean even her. And this says a lot about global missions, which is why the phrase white unto harvest shows up later, and we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. Um, And this mostly says a lot about the extent of God's grace, that the way that God cleans is this full, outrageous kind of cleaning that goes to surprising lengths to save sinners. I mean, the disciples showed up later, and they were like, "Uh, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. I think he just drank from her... You know, and they don't know what to say. They didn't say anything. You know, we're, we're told that they had these questions. They're like, what's he doing that for? And I don't know, just shut up, get the bread and go, t- you know, type of a thing. They didn't know what to do with this. Now, the prophet Jeremiah uses the phrase living water a couple of times in a really neat way. So listen to this. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to Jeremiah 17, verses 13 to 14. You can find it later if you'd like. Jeremiah 17, 13 to 14. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Pretty good description of Samaritans and pretty good description of this particular Samaritan. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Written in the earth. That's a really cool poetic way to say that you're going to die and be buried. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. The New Living Translation says, buried in the dust. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. 
Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. That's a really beautiful piece of poetry. Jeremiah knew what he was doing, and he knew how to use words, and he says a bunch of things there that were pretty. So let me say that again. O Lord, the hope of all Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. That's part of a a beautiful long section there in Jeremiah 17. Here's Jesus, and he's saying, I am the spring or the fountain of living water who brings healing and salvation to people that have been marked with shame and condemned to death. And, and this is very welcome news to those of us who can see things in common with the woman at the well. Uh, you may not have been married five times and sleeping around with a guy who's not your husband right now, although some of you might be. But this is very welcome news to those of us who realize that it doesn't take that in order to be in exactly the same spot where she is, which is sin that has stained me, and I don't know what to do about it. And so I like the woman at the well. And I love how Jesus is frequently, uh, frequently around women like this. And I think there's an awesome lesson there about grace and a heart that reaches out to the marginalized, not just reaching down from on high, but actually creating an environment that's comfortable for somebody who is marginalized and dealing with shame. I think there's things here about a religious attitude that bucks the status quo in order to bring good news to unlikely people. And I think there is also something here for men to be strong and godly people who lavish grace instead of judgmentalism on serious sin. And so this makes a difference to people who who deal with shame that the kind of water that Jesus cleans you with really cleans you. The phrase living water is also messianic, by which I mean that when the prophets were talking about the Messiah, they sometimes also talked about this idea of living water. In other words, that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be lots of living water around. When the Messiah comes, this hot, dry, parched land spiritually speaking, but also, but also it's kind of a hot, dry, parched place anyway. But this, this hot, dry, parched place is going to flow with fresh water when the Messiah shows up. Zechariah 14, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. That's something that I would like to observe someday where you've got a, a spring of water coming up in Jerusalem, which if you see the sort of geography of the Holy Land, Jerusalem is at the top of some mountains. And so if it goes, if it goes you know, westward, then it goes to the Mediterranean. If it goes eastward, then it goes all the way over to the Jordan and the Dead Sea, which we're told at some point is going to team. People are going to fish out of the Dead Sea because this living water is going to come there. So that'd be something pretty cool to see, to see a, a, street, a, a fountain of water coming out of somewhere around Jerusalem that is so strong that it actually moves in two different directions. That's kind of a cool, kind of a cool visual. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, 
And then a couple of verses later, Jerusalem shall dwell securely. So we're talking about the Messiah, and we're talking about something that will happen when the Messiah Messiah shows up, that there's going to be lots and lots of abundant living water. And then you have Revelation 21, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So very clearly, there's an Old Testament concept of living water here. And Jesus, at the end of the Bible, is making it available to all kinds of people without payment. And here at the beginning of his ministry, he's saying, you're never going to believe what I'm going to do. It's a beautiful promise that we will live forever in the presence of God, always clean from sin with no shortage of this living water to jump in and play in and be refreshed by and be cleaned by. And we are cleaned by his provision, not by our own work, but something that God does. God gives grace and mercy to all who come to him for salvation. Again, you might have lots of things to feel bad about. I'm no good. I always do the same wrong stuff. People are mad at me. I've grown up with people mad at you. You, you know, you're one of these shame-based people that, that always has a sense of kind of being unsettled because there isn't a, any kind of confidence about yourself and you're standing with other people and you're standing with God. And so when we talk about the gospel, you'd probably pass it if it were a Scantron multiple choice test, but you don't pass it when it comes to really feeling clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me just say, first of all, that this is something that you have got to deal with because part of your issue is questioning the ability of the blood of Jesus Christ to do what God says that it does. Now, that's a rational argument against feelings, and so that can only take us so far, but you've got to awaken yourself spiritually with that reality that you actually think your sin is so bad that Jesus can't do what he says that he does with sin. And God is this all-powerful, gracious God that brings this infinitely powerful blood into your situation, cleans you from sin, and you walk away still feeling guilty. So there's an irrationality there that has to be dealt with, but... In order to deal with the uh, irrational side of that, let me read you this hilarious way of describing the Messianic age in Isaiah 66. Listen Listen to this. Maybe this will poetically reach you in a way that just a logical doctrinal argument won't. Isaiah 66, verses 10 to 13, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All of you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem." And God is saying this to some of the most fantastic screw-ups of history. These guys went into exile because they did everything wrong and they got dragged by the nose into exile. And before it even happened, here's Isaiah 66, before the exile. And God is saying, you're going to go into exile and when you come back, I want you to read this. I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. I mean, that's just neat being bounced upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. 
Look, living water from God, from Jesus Christ, does cleanse from sin. And it is not just a, okay, you're in, but I can't even remember your name, and I don't really want to spend time with you, but you're in. But it is as personal of the language as God can use to explain the kind of love that he has for you, made possible by the substitutionary death of his son. Living water is cleansing from sin, and Jesus gives it abundantly to all who will drink from his well. But it's more than that, and we'll deal with that next week. <laughs> Let me close. Let me close with uh, this from Ephesians 2, a passage that many of you know and memorized, but it's worth repeating. God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray to this loving and gracious God. God in heaven, we come before you knowing that there is zero merit on our own part for walking into your throne room, and yet. You want us there. You call us your children. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. Uh, you call us your cherished possession, your treasured possession. How any of that is possible is, is beyond our ability to understand, that kind of love and grace. Uh, but we thank you that we can boldly and confidently walk into your presence, your holy, all-powerful, majestic presence, where the foundations of the room shake just because the angels are there shouting, holy, 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 and we can walk right into that presence and you welcome us there. And we thank you, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for all those who deal with, with uh, chronic shame. I pray for all those here this morning who just feel like they never quite measure up to all of the things that a Christian should do and all of that. And God, I pray that, that your holy grace would be planted firmly in their hearts. And I pray that you would let us see the blessing of your word planted in their hearts over the weeks and months and years that we have together, Lord. I pray that those of us who struggle with shame would begin to be able to look people very clearly in the eye with a twinkle there because we know that even though, even though it makes zero sense, we are loved by the only Father and King who matters. You are a great and awesome God and we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for letting us even talk to you. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray now as we sing some songs to you that you would be glorified by them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.